Welcome to episode 14 of Out on a Limb, where traditional finance and the new digital economy converge with a sense of history. My name's Tim Enneking. Today is December 7th, 2022, and it is about uh, three o'clock in the afternoon. So I guess the first thing for anyone claiming to have a sense of history is today, as uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, the day that will live in infamy, because this is the day in 1941 when uh, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. And although 1941 was a while ago, I want to give a shout out to a very good friend of mine, Helen Shamrell, who is 101 and a half years old and who vividly remembers uh, Pearl Harbor Day, not from being there, uh, but she uh, she lives in Oregon and at the time lived in Oregon and actually remembers it quite vividly. Her uh, her body is slowing down a bit, but her mind is just as sharp as ever. So hello, Helen. The first topic for today, and these will be in, uh, four really short topics, especially the last two. But the first one is what is yield farming? You've heard me refer to that, and it occurred to me that probably it's worth spending some time on what crypto yield farming is uh, what it refers to. Uh, the yield farming is just something like mining. It's just a, a metaphor taken from the, the regular universe, if you will. Uh, the yield simply refers to interest. So you, can, you could actually call this uh, interest rate uh, earning or something like that, except it's variable. So var a variable interest rate product would be a more standard classic fiat way of saying this. Yield farming, though, is unique in a couple of ways. First, it's done on the D5 protocol, the decentralized finance protocol in the crypto space. And so what that means is that you're picking a particular pair to yield farm on. Let, let me give you an example. And this is what, what we do in, in our segregated managed accounts in Salion. I'm not trying to market it. I'm just trying to say we do this on a daily basis. We have a lot of experience in it. You actually, you have to have obviously crypto, but you can take a stable coin. So let's say you take your U.S. dollars and you buy some USDC. So the, the U.S. dollar backed stable coin that is issued by Circle Finance, which is backed by, among other uh, institutions, Goldman Sachs. And so you're pretty confident it's one to one. It's going to stay one to one. It's not going to lose its peg, as the phrase goes, where it would be worth less than a dollar. And then you take those, uh, you take those USDC, put them on one blockchain and indicate that you want it, you're available to be a liquidity partner, an LP, but in this case, sorry, liquidity provider, not a limited partner, a liquidity provider. I confuse myself. So you say you indicate you're going to be an LP and you pick uh, another blockchain to which someone who also has USDC wants to migrate. And there are transaction costs and timing issues because what you're really doing is selling your USD on one blockchain and buying it on another. So in a way, it's a trade, but you're buying the same thing, buying and selling the same thing. But there is a transaction cost. There is a timing gap, which is why you need a liquidity provider. And you as a liquidity provider will provide that. So for the USDC that you purchase, let's say you bought $1,000 of USDC, you indicate you're going to be an LP, a liquidity provider between two blockchains, Aave and Matic or whatever, and you earn a couple of bips from a transaction where somebody decides to move his 
1,000 BTC from one blockchain to another. And so you end up with a tiny, tiny, tiny fee out of that. Well, that goes back in your original $1,000, so now you've got $1,000.20, and you do it all over again. And you will do that dozens of times, on rare occasion, hundreds of times in a day, but tens of thousands of times during a year. And that $0.20 cents adds up, and recently the rate for that type of yield farming, so it's stablecoin yield farming, it's dropped quite a bit this year, but it's effectively never been below about 10.5, 10.6%. It occasionally will dip below that, but just as occasionally will shoot up to 12. So you're not taking a position, you're not trading, you're simply providing liquidity. And the metaphor I like to use in the fiat space, it's, it's almost not a metaphor, it's almost a direct equivalent. On the NASDAQ, when you want to buy 100 shares of Tesla and someone else wants to sell 100 shares of Tesla, if you simultaneously, at the exact mic microsecond, the way things are going now, uh, want to sell, enter your orders, that sell will be triggered. Your 1,000 Tesla or 100 Tesla will go to the, go to the buyer. But let's say at 10, 10 a.m. you want to sell 100 shares of Tesla and at 10, 20 a.m. somebody else wants to buy the 100 shares of Tesla and there's nothing going on in between. An unlikely scenario, but I'm simplifying things deliberately for the explanation. Well, there's a carrying cost there and someone has to make up that gap and that's a market maker that makes up the gap. But the market maker needs money and the market maker borrows the money from liquidity providers. So in this case, it's the market maker that's making a margin from bridging that trade, call it a mez loan or a mezzanine loan if you want, and the market maker borrows that money. So it pays 5, 6, 7% maybe. It's a, it's a decent rate of return in most markets, uh, that, especially when interest rates were low, and the market maker obviously makes some additional funds. Now, in the, on the NASDAQ, it's a huge pool. There's... There are a number of market makers, there are a number of liquidity providers, but it's single digits, right? Five or six main liquidity providers. And what happens there is that if it's Tesla or Amazon or General Motors or IBM or whatever that could happens to be, whatever the trade is, it'll be a single pool of money that the market maker will draw on. That pool may be provided by several market makers, but it's a single pool regardless of where the trades are going, from which stocks to which stocks. In DeFi, it's different. As I said, you pick your pair. You pick your poison, I suppose. You decide which trade you want to provide the liquidity for. And there effectively is no market maker because it's decentralized finance. By picking the pair, you eliminate the need for the market maker. But you still need the liquidity on the protocol to bridge the, get, the timing gap between those pairs. So it's a remarkably low-risk way of earning money because you are not taking a position in any sort of you know, potentially wild cryptocurrency. You, although we do the same thing, by the way, we do the same thing in, in BTC or Bitcoin, yield farming, the same thing in ETH or, uh, or Ethereum mining, where someone who has BTC can provide uh, liquidity to other people who are moving BTC from one blockchain to another. So they provide that liquidity, the, the, the grease, if you will, the oil and the gears to allow the trades to take place regardless of what the timing differences are. But if you're a fiat investor, you stay in stable coins, you literally have no 
what I would call really fiat risk. There's some infrastructure risk. There are some other types of risk that kick in. I don't mean to say it's risk-free because nothing is risk-free, but it doesn't have the risks that many people are worried about with things like FTX and Luna and a, and a, and a bunch of other topics that's a, that have recently come up. So there is a fairly uh, straightforward, slightly simplified explanation of what yield farming is. And I think it's important for people to, to understand that because in a high re- interest rate environment, it's one of the few ways I know of that with a more than reasonable level of risk, you can actually make more uh, than the rate of inflation. The second topic might sound a little bit academic, but especially lately with news from Blackstone, for instance, on the fiat side and FTX on the crypto side, it really is not. And that is the difference between insolvency and illiquidity. Now, insolvency means you owe money, you owe assets, you owe something, and you don't have it, you can't get it, your balance sheet is dry, the cupboard is bare. You are bankrupt. The second term is illiquidity. And you know many people use these basically interchangeably, but they're not at all. Illiquidity means you have assets. You have plenty of assets. Your assets could perhaps vastly exceed your liabilities, but you can't cash out on them. And then some companies, and I'll give you an example of this as well, can actually have some elements of both. The best example in day-to-day life of being very solvent but illiquid is the biggest asset in most people's lives, your house. Let's say you have a house with a, you had a mortgage on it, you've been paying it for a while, you know, it's appreciated and you've paid the mortgage down, so it's 50% mortgage-free and uh, what they call an, an, an asset-rich house. Then you have all of this money that is literally sitting there, right, that you're living inside of, but you can't get out. Now, that is the reason why home equity lines of credit were invented and, and why they are so and why they're so popular, because they take an illiquid investment and turn into something that's liquid. But of course, you're not insolvent just because you have, I mean, if you have a let's use round nice numbers, a million dollar house, five hundred thousand dollars in equity, you're not insolvent at all. You know, assuming you don't have any weird, other weird bills, and yet you, you're cash poor. Enter the equity line of credit, and you're fine. A couple of examples. Blackstone Real Estate Fund last week announced that it was suspending withdrawals. And it made, it made a lot of news, partly because people were sort of primed for horrible news like that from FTX, but it's like Blackstone's one of the biggest financial institutions in the world. It's hardly like FTX. It's extremely well managed. They actually use accounting records. Uh, what, what's going on there? And the answer lies in the term real estate, and it's very close to what's what I was just describing with respect to homeowners and their uh, illiquid equity in their houses. Blackstone Real Estate, the Blackstone Real Estate Fund, obviously buys real estate. It also on many occasions sells real estate. There's always there are always transactions going both ways at any given time. And there's also a bunch of cash on hand. But if a if a large number of investors, or a large number of large investors, more or less simultaneously want to pull their money out, Blackstone will not have enough liquidity 
not enough cash on hand and near-term liquidity from pending sales to be able to meet all those withdrawals, all those redemptions. It doesn't mean it's insolvent. It's not insolvent at all, but it does mean it's illiquid. So knowing this in advance, many funds, but especially a fund like a real estate fund, will set up a gate. They'll tell you, okay, the most we can do, and I don't know what the terms of the Blackstone Fund are, probably quarterly withdrawals. They'll say, okay, the largest number of withdrawals we can process, or we're obligated to process, they can always do more, in any given quarter is, is let's say, I'm making this up, 10% of our assets. So if people submitting redemptions hit 20% of assets, everyone will get cut down to 50%. So they do it proportionally. Or maybe it's first come, first serve. They have some rule for breaking ties, but they gate the, as the term is used, they gate their redemptions because if they didn't, and they suddenly had to sell all this real estate at a fire sale because they had four days to, to pay a redemption, they would hurt both the exiting shareholders and really hurt the, or the exiting investors and really hurt the investors that stay behind. So in fairness to everyone, the terms of the fund will give Blackstone more time to meet these withdrawals without disrupting the market and without selling its assets at very low prices. There, the mechanism, the, safe, the safeguarding mechanism is gating. We're going to slow down the withdrawals so we don't have a panic. Now, let's take another fiat example, and that is bank runs. It's the same thing. It's illiquid, not insolvent. If you have an account in a bank, your, your local branch, and let's say, to keep it a little bit simpler, let's say it's a small town bank, single branch, it's the only branch they have. It's not part of a major network. And everyone on the same day from that small town goes in and tries to withdraw all their money. The bank will be lucky if it can pay probably 6 or 7% of what everyone has in the bank. It is illiquid. The money is not there. But it's not insolvent because the money is someplace. The bank is required to keep, I think it's 8% now, of the assets that it has you know, the deposits effectively, again, simplifying, but simplifying in a way that doesn't change the, the validity of the example at all, roughly 8% of its deposits. And it has to be in cash or in, in cash equivalent, so it might not, might not be available that day. But if more than 8% of the people go and want to withdraw, they can't get it. Now, banks usually will do a first-come, first-serve basis. Sometimes you'll see and you read about in developing countries you know, there'll be a limit is what you can withdraw uh, on a given day. That's happened in the United States during the Depression as well. The U.S. is hardly immune from that. No country is. But if there's a bank run, not everyone can get their money. And in addition, you have insurance in, in, in the U.S. is called FDIC, but in every major country in the world, there's insurance covering those bank deposits. So even if the bank is insolvent, below a certain limit, in the U.S. it's quite high, I think it's $250,000 now, you will get all your money back, which is why you're better off opening multiple accounts if you're sitting on lots of cash rather than doing one. Multiple accounts actually in multiple banks. So a bank run is another example of illiquidity versus insolvency. Then you have FTX, which FTX and Alameda and that whole group of 130 companies, interestingly, not all of them are bankrupt. Some of them actually have a there's SPVs or special purpose vehicles that have some really valuable assets. One of them has a significant percent of Robinhood, the Robinhood Exchange, for instance. But FTX is insolvent. 
it ha its debts far exceed its uh, assets. Now, also, some of those debts are, are illiquid, which would, which would kind of modify the situation if the assets were anywhere near the total of, of the liabilities, but they're not. So FTX is straight up insolvent with some small elements of liquidity. Then the last example I'll bring up is Gemini, which, especially things like uh, Gemini Earn, which was a platform that would, a crypto platform that would promise people a fixed yield without having a greater fixed yield on the backside. So Gemini would run around trying to earn more than what it was promising, a, a risky proposition at the, at the best of times. Well, Gemini is, has suspended withdrawals as well. So, and Gemini is definitely illiquid. It has about, I forget what the number is, it keeps going up. Last I heard it was $900 million that was stuck in the FTX Alameda, Alameda fiasco. And it was already weakened by the earlier, earlier Celsius um, UST Terra Luna mess. So it, it has suspended withdrawals as well. And there is definitely, there's clearly a major illiquidity, illiquidity element, but there's almost certainly an element of insolvency, a non-trivial one here, because even if it gets any money out of FTX, it will A, probably be a long time from now, and B, probably be pennies on the dollar. Now, Gemini has some backing because of its, its parent corporation. I won't go into lots of details about Digital Capital Group and everything, but uh, Gemini, I suspect, will survive. That doesn't mean everyone is going to get all of their uh, deposits back that they deposited to get this uh, fixed return, but they, they well may. And actually, there's an interesting court case, I think it's today, where uh, a number of investors have sued Gemini saying, hey, what we, or maybe it's Celsius, one of the two, but it's going to apply to the other one, so it doesn't really matter. When we, when we the investors, give you money to get this this uh, rate of return, it's no longer our money. We're giving it to you, and you're earning with it, and then you give the results back to us, plus it's fixed percent. Whereas the investors are saying, no, 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 it's our money. We're lending it to you. So we then become a much higher level of creditor than just an investor. We'll see where, the, where that decision goes. It's quite an important one. So just again to summarize, insolvency means you're bankrupt. Illiquidity means you're running out of, you have lots of assets, but you don't have the cash today. And sometimes if someone really has time-sensitive debts they have to pay, illiquidity will also cause bankruptcy, but far from always. The two final points are, are relatively short. First of all, uh, another shout out, but this time to an entire country, uh, the Ukraine brought the war that Russia started but didn't declare to Russia over the, uh, over the last couple of days. Um, Engels, Ryazansk, and Kursk were all attacked by drones. Interestingly, they were probably lased to, for guidance purposes, a laser beam uh, placed on the target. They're probably lased by local teams. So it's very interesting uh, if you look at the implications of, of what happened. But Putin's 10-day war, which we now know is how he and the MOD, the Ministry of Defense of Russia, were thinking about the now 10-month war. Uh, short, short and glorious war is the uh, apocryphal aphorism about that. It almost always ends up 
in a long bloody war, and it certainly is here. So it is, is also showing, uh, showing the Russians how, how uh, very strong and how much spirit the Ukrainians have, as well as how poor Putin and other uh, aspects of Russian leadership are. The last point, much more, much more upbeat, is the, is the World Cup. been watching it with uh, my team here. Uh, interestingly, there have been more and larger upsets in the history of the World Cup. If you look at where the teams are ranked, who have won, of course, the biggest one being Saudi Arabia upsetting uh, Argentina, an amazing coup uh, in, the, uh, in uh, the in World Cup history, just, just phenomenal. Argentina still made it into the knockout round, and Saudi Arabia didn't, but amazing job by Saudi Arabia. And interestingly, yesterday there was a match with Switzerland where they lost 6-1, and I thought, man, that's a big difference with five goals scored. It was Portugal versus Switzerland. Portugal really teed off on Switzerland. And we looked it up, and it turned out that that goal differential was actually tied for the biggest goal differential in World Cup history in the knockout rounds. There have been bigger goal differentials in the, in the qualifying rounds, and there have been more goals scored in the knockout rounds. But in terms of, of differentials, that was the biggest one. As you can tell, I like statistics like that. The last point there is that I, I find it mildly amusing what I call the battles across the straits because you already had Morocco and Spain across you know, the Straits of Gibraltar, what used to be called uh, the Gates of Hercules. And Morocco amazingly won in, a, in an absolutely stunning uh, penalty kickoff where uh, Spain <laughs> took three tries and didn't get any uh, any goals. It was really quite amazing. And then you have the second Battle of the Straits coming up, which is England and France, who has, have loved each other over the centuries, ever since even before 1066 AD, when William the Conqueror uh, invaded England and was the last person to successfully, to successfully do that. So geopolitically, you really end up with some interesting, uh, interesting matchups, uh, none more interesting from that standpoint than Iran versus the U.S., but that's already old news. So I wish everybody enjoyment in watching the World Cup if you're into that. And we'll be watching it both this weekend through next week and next. And with that, uh, I wish you all a very pleasant rest of the week. And we will speak again uh, next Tuesday. Thank you very much.